Man, last week, if you were here, man, it was such a privilege. We baptized four people in water last week. Uh, my man Orlando and three kids. One of them was my son. And it was amazing just to get to celebrate new life. Yeah, give them all a hand. It was such an awesome day. And that's how we change the world, one kid and one grown up at a time, when God gets a hold of their lives. So thanks for being a part of that. Thanks for sticking around, praying over us, believing in us. It was a good day. It was a good day. We talked about last week, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're talking about, as God's people, how we should be together in action. Last week we talked about how we we are together in spirit. Today, together in action. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bibles if you'd like to be ready. That's what we're going to read from today. And this is a follow-up to last week. Like I said, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Ephesians 1, 4, 1 through 6 tells us that we should be together in our hearts, together in spirit. And remember last week, we laid the foundation by saying this. We said, no matter what we do, we have to be together. No matter what we do as God's people, we have to be together. If we ascend to the highest of heights, we have to do it together. If we struggle with the lowest of lows, we have to do it together. Realize, friends, that in this entire chapter, in chapter 4, Paul is talking specifically to the church. He's talking to us. He's talking to me, and he's talking to you. Those of us sitting in this place today, he is talking to us. We talked about uh, last week that if we are together in the depths of our hearts, there's a few things that we do. Are we going to trade this guy out? That one's fired. This one is hired. We'll see how it goes today. <clears throat> anyway, we talked last week about if we're together in the depths of our heart, in our, in our spirit, we honor our call. That's like Christianese, churchies talk, right? But that call that God has given us is to find the line between the sacred and the secular. And we're supposed to live firmly on the sacred side. Live our life the way that God asks us to, but in view of those who need to see the work of God's grace in our lives. If we're so far away from those who don't know the Lord, uh, then we can't ever tell them about it. We talked about how we are marked by God. It's in Ephesians. We're marked by God with certain characteristics. There's a really great list of things that mark us as God's children there in verse 2. Things like humility and gentleness. Finally, we talked about how we are one, that there is one God that we're all under. There's seven things that says in there, one God, one spirit, one baptism. That we're supposed to be together in spirit, and no matter what we do, we've got to do it together. That brings us to the action part, together in action. That's what we're talking about today, together in action. You know, one of the the strange quirks of the English language, and I've always heard this, is that we have these strange expressions, and they are things that only make sense if you know the language well. Sometimes they have to do with one thing, and, and they mean completely another. For example, the metaphor, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now, you all know what that means, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. When we say this, we're not really talking about fruit or trees at all. We're talking about how a relative, right? They're like another relative. My son, John, is just manically obsessed with baseball, right? And people that knew me when I was a kid, they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Another common one that is kind of along those same lines, another chip off the old block. 
We've all heard that one, right? Again, we're not talking about hammers or chisels or blocks at all. We're talking about how someone is similar to the relative. And these can actually be really hard to explain. If you've lived in the United States, if English is your first language, they're really easy for you to understand. But every once in a while, and this has really been crystallized for me lately, every once in a while, I'll say one of these to Miss Zolga. She teaches kids for us. She's Russian. I'll say one of these, and she'll stop me. She'll say, she'll put her hand on my shoulder. She'll say, whoa, 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 what does this mean? And I'll try and explain it to her, and like, I'll, I mean, I'll have to really figure out how to make it plain for her because it doesn't make any sense to her. It's this expression, right? There's some pretty good ones from other countries that I ran across. I thought, you know, if, if the English language has them, I bet there's some others. There's some good ones I ran across from other countries this week. If you hear a Dutch person say, it's a monkey sandwich story, this is a real thing. That means something like it's an urban legend. So if you hear a Dutch person say, that's a monkey sandwich story, it's an urban legend. I don't know how in the world they came up with that. They probably think this about chip off the old block, right? If a French person tells you to go cook yourself an egg, that means leave me alone. <laughs> so now you can start using that at home. Go cook yourself an egg. If a Swedish person says that you are brown as a gingerbread cookie, that really means you have a good tan. That's what they're saying in Sweden if they tell you you're brown as a gingerbread cookie. Finally, if someone who is Latvian tells you you are blowing little ducks, that's a way of saying that someone is lying in Latvia. What I'm saying is all languages have these things. And for the, the reason for the humorous side road today is that there is a phrase that can encapsulate what we are talking about today. In fact, the phrase is even in the Bible, if you read the right version, the phrase is, talk is cheap. It's a thing that's pretty common to hear in the United States, talk is cheap. And we know that if someone says to you, talk is cheap, they're not pointing out to you that it literally costs zero pennies to speak. They're not saying that it costs nothing to talk. What they're saying is that talk doesn't mean much if it's not backed up with action. Ecclesiastes 5.7 in the NLT, New Living Translation, it actually says this. Uh, you can look it up. Talk is cheap, like daydreams and other useless activities. The next time someone says to you, talk is cheap, you can say, yeah, it's in the Bible. And what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians chapter 4 is that you can say all the pretty things you want. But eventually your words have to be backed up with some action. And here in Ephesians 4, 7 through 12, I believe we can see two ways that we as a church can be together in action. It was, I was going to have three ways, and it was going to be longer, but we would have been here way too long, and everyone would have wanted to go to the barbecue. So we'll do the third way next week. Ephesians 4, 7 through 12 tells us how we can be together in action. So if you have your Bibles, your devices, uh, turn to those this morning. I'm reading the NIV, Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. It says this, But to each one of us, grace has been given, as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. 
We're going to stop there. Your Bible might have a period or it might have a comma, depending on which version you have, but we're going to stop right there. Because here in verses 7 through 10, we see this. We are together in action when we recognize that we are unique. We're picking up on this theme here with Paul in his letters. Whenever we see a therefore or a then or a however or a but, a B-U-T, we know that he is about to change directions. When he says to you, therefore, that means he's about to turn left. That's what we see here in verse 7. Paul, he's just spent verses 1 through 6, and really a whole lot of those first three chapters, he's talking about unity. He's talking about being together. And now comes the however. Yes, we've got to be unified, but we also have to realize that all of us are unique. You are different from me, I'm different from you, and I'm so thankful for that. It'd be real boring if all of you were like me. But here, this is so crucial, friends, we have to understand this. Unity does not mean that we are all the same. Once again, we see this, we've seen it several times in Ephesians, we see this really unique use of the word grace in verse 7. It says, but to each one of us, grace has been given. As in earlier parts of Ephesians, this isn't referring to different word in the Greek. This doesn't refer to the grace given when we receive salvation, but to gifts we have been graced with. So it's more like God saying, this person has been graced with a gift. Mike has been graced with the gift of playing drums. That's what it's saying. And it's really essential, church, that we understand God has given every single one of us, all of you in this room, special gifts that are unique to you. There's nobody else like you in the entire world. And he intends us to use those gifts to edify the church. He gave us the gifts and he intends us to use them to edify the church. He intends us to use those gifts to work towards being worthy of the calling that we talked about last week. That call to live on the the sacred side. Paul tells us something really important here at the end of verse 6 and verse 7. And as I was telling the worship team before, it's something I discovered this week as I was studying this. It is Jesus himself who gets to hand out these gifts. He sees us and he knows us. Friends, if you don't believe it, know this. Jesus sees you and he knows you. And he chose us specifically for the gifts that we have. It's hard for me to get my my mind around it, but he chose me specifically for the gifts that I have. And Paul even goes into the reason Jesus gets the privilege of doing this. In a verse 8, he does this really cool thing. He actually goes and he, he quotes a psalm with a slight twist. Basically, he preaches a sermon a little bit. What is unusual is he doesn't quote it exactly. See, if you go back and you read Psalm 68, we don't have time to do it today. But if you go read Psalm 68, you're going to find that David, King David, is celebrating a victory. And he's returning with the spoils of war. So the Old Testament, they would go and they would defeat a kingdom or a town or whatever, and they would return with all the gold, all the treasure, whatever. And when that king came back, he could give it to whoever he wanted. So you can imagine him on the way back, you know, these weapons, I'm going to go give these to my my eight-year-old so he can learn how to throw spears or something, right? I mean, that's what I would be thinking. Like I said, though, he doesn't quote it exactly. Paul does something really creative here in verses 9 and 10. He takes this psalm and he applies it to Jesus. 
And Paul reasons this, that Jesus, when he was born as a baby, and he died and he rose again, he descended to earth. He fought the battle with death and he won. And he returned to heaven. He ascended to the right hand of his father with all of the gifts of heaven and earth. And because Jesus has won the battle, it's his right to pass out the gifts as he sees fit. Jesus came to earth and he won the battle and he gets to take those gifts and hand them out whoever he wants. There is this that I believe is so important. Jesus knows what gifts we need because he's walked in our shoes. He knows what it's like down here on planet earth. So he knows what we need. He knows, he knew what I was going to need this very moment. He knew that I was going to need in my life uh, a little bit of patience, a little bit of grace. He knew that my wife uh, was going to marry me and she was going to need to be someone who was a little bit driven to kick me in the pants sometimes. He knew every gift that every one of you needed to have. I think this is such an incredible visual because we all do this with the things we're talented at in our lives. You know, pretty much every uh, pastor, anyone who's called a minister, they, they have a side hustle they can go do. So in between jobs or if you need extra money or whatever, you can go work. And uh, I've done professional audiovisual since I was a young man, since I was like 20. And uh, off and on, I've worked for a production company here in the Valley. And the last time I did it, I worked for this guy full time. And one of the things he would do is he would send me out to do installs. So a church would call or a convention center would call or a restaurant I did everything you could possibly think of, but uh, every type of place you can think of. But they would call, and they would say, we need X thing to happen. We need to have displays, or we need to have speakers. And so the boss would send me out, and because I had done this kind of work before, I knew what they were looking for, and I could walk in, and I could start to evaluate. Okay, you need this here. You need this here. You're going to need this back here. You need to pull these wires through the wall and put this connector right here. Because... I had uh, done that stuff before. I had an idea. And once I get in there, I know what they need. I don't know until I get in there. But once I get in, I know what they need. And Jesus, because he's been right here on this earth in person, he knows what we need. He's experienced the brokenness and the pain that this world can dish out. He knows exactly what it is that we need in this life that we're living. You see, when we accept him, he, he fills us with his presence. That's what the Bible says. And when he fills us with his presence, he begins to grace us with his good gifts. It says right here in verse 10, Jesus descended to earth and then ascended to heaven. And then in your Bible, it probably says, so that he could fill the earth with these gifts. One of the reasons he did what he did is so he could do this, so he could fill the earth with his good gifts. And the cherry on top, like we alluded to earlier, the thing that makes it so beautiful is that no two of us are the same. In fact, the church is at its best when people with different gifts embrace the call together. We are at our best when we take our different gifts and we embrace the call of Christ together. I'd even take it one step further, and I would say this, that when we not only recognize but embrace our different gifts, that's when the church looks most like Jesus. When we embrace the gifts God has given us, even, yes, embrace our differences, 
that's when we look the most like Jesus. Oh, we still have the same goal, of course, and that is to be closer to him, to see others come to him. The word together in action, when we recognize as God's people that we are unique. Next thing in Ephesians 4, we see this. We are together in action when we live in motion. When we live in motion. If we're going to accomplish anything together as God's people, not just this church, but the big C church in the world, if we're going to accomplish anything together, we have to be moving. Got to be moving forward. We've got to be taking these gifts that Jesus fought hard for us to have, that he came to earth and fought death and won. We've got to take those gifts that he won for us, uh, and we've got to put them to use each day. Paul tells us here in Ephesians uh, that we've all been given specific gifts, and that we are supposed to take those specific gifts, and we're to put them in motion, and that they are given for a specific purpose. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12 here in a moment. And as we read them, I want you to know this, that there is a little bit of disagreement in like the, uh, the church world over exactly how these gifts that are described here are used in the present day. And as we read them, know that there are other spiritual gifts mentioned elsewhere that we will touch on. So if we read this and you don't see yourself in any of them, hang with me for a moment, okay? But let's read verses 11 and 12, refresh our memory. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So the body of Christ may be built up. We're going to talk about the gifts mentioned here in verse 11, but I really want to focus actually on verse 12 more than verse 11. And here's the reason. Because ministry itself is more important than a title. Using a gift that God has given you is more important than any title you could have. And it's verse 12 that triggers this thought for me that we're together when we put our gifts in motion. There are many Christians, though, they can get hung up on these gifts that are mentioned here in verse 11, especially the apostles and the prophets part. So I'm just going to give you the like way zoomed out version of this. I want to hopefully help us not get too focused on those titles this morning to keep the bigger picture in focus. And I'm warning you, I'm just scratching the surface of this discussion. So if you're here and you are way deep into talking about the gifts of the fivefold ministry and stuff, we can have that conversation another time when everyone else will not be bored out of their minds. If you want to have a deeper one, uh, we can talk sometimes besides a Sunday morning, coffee or lunch. Uh, and I can point you to great resources that have been developed about this passage too. But here's what happens. We see these gifts mentioned here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors. And we as humans, we gravitate towards wanting these specific titles. For some reason, us humans, we really like our titles. We really like to be called uh, these specific uh, fancy titles. The problem is that we don't see in the New Testament any instruction to appoint these specific titles to people, especially those first three, apostles, prophets, and evangelists. We don't see it anywhere. Apostles is referring literally to those who walked and talked with Jesus. Walked and talked with him physically in the flesh. Generally, we take this to mean the 12 disciples, along with Paul, who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Those apostles that walked and talked with Jesus, they had a specific mission. They had seen the guy with their own two eyes. 
And the things that I've seen with my own two eyes, I can describe to you better than the things that I haven't. And remember, Paul was given a specific mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles and unite the church after he had this experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He'd seen him with his own two eyes until Jesus blinded him. These apostles in the New Testament, they were tasked with the job of traveling, taking the message of Jesus far and wide and starting churches. And they did that. If you go read church history, that's what those guys did. They went all over the place and they planted and started churches. Similarly, we see those with the gift of a prophet throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we don't see anyone ever appointed as a prophet. We do, however, see something that's really important. We do see the appointment of elders. I'm going to take you through several, several scriptures here. Acts 14, 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. We also see encouragement in the New Testament for the appointment of pastors and overseers. A couple scriptures for you here. Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church, of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Be shepherds. Also, 1 Peter 5, 2 says this. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those trusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, we see some important words in there that we use all the time, right? We see the word shepherd. We see the word pastor, if you read the right version. So we can see here that there's precedent as the apostles were setting up these churches for overseers or pastors. And pastor and teacher in this passage, this is, uh, they're meant to be seen as two gifts that can kind of complement each other. That's why if you were here uh, our very first official week when Pastor Tim and Debbie Bridgewater, uh, who passed the church off to us, who commissioned us, that's why Pastor Tim gave me a shepherd staff. Because that's what that word stands for. You're supposed to be a shepherd, an overseer. And in a nutshell, that's why we don't appoint apostles, prophets, or evangelists, because when they went out and planted churches, they said, you're supposed to be overseers, shepherds. We don't see it done in the New Testament anywhere that people are appointed apostles or evangelists. But, however, this is super, super key this morning. That doesn't mean that those gifts, apostolic gifts or prophetic gifts or evangelistic gifts, it does not mean that those gifts are not bestowed upon people and that they're not used today. I believe wholeheartedly there's people with apostolic gifts, evangelistic gifts, prophetic gifts. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, another scripture we don't have time to go look at, 1 Corinthians 12, it gives a list of these gifts if you'd like uh, to go through and write them down for reference. And what 1 Corinthians 12 says is that uh, spiritual gifts are given, but not everyone has every gift. Every one of you has spiritual gifts that God has specifically, specifically given you, but not everyone has every gift. There are many, many people with apostolic types of gifts whose mission is to go plant churches. God gave them that gift so they could go do that. Just because the New Testament doesn't give them that title doesn't mean God didn't give them the gift. The Assemblies of God, which is the denomination that we're part of, it's planted over 225,000 churches since 1914, including this one. 
This would not be possible without people that had apostolic types of gifts to go and pioneer, just as the New Testament apostles did. People who can just go to a community, grab a couple of people, and be like, okay, I'm starting something. I'm so thankful that to this point in my life, the Lord has not asked me to do that because I do not think I have that gift. And these gifts, though, when they are used as God intends, they are incredibly valuable and unique. There's a really easy way to tell, though, if someone is using an apostolic gift or if they're just looking for a title. Like we said, people get hung up on titles. It's really easy to tell in the New Testament and now. False apostles, they don't go and start churches or ministries. Instead, false apostles, they spend their time looking to poke holes in, tear down, discredit healthy ministries that are already established. You would like to think that doesn't happen, but there are people who would call themselves apostles who that's what they, that's what they hang their head on, poking holes in other people's ministries that are healthy. There are many, many people out there who will claim they have an apostolic calling on their lives, and I would just encourage you to look at the fruit of what they're doing. Are they pioneering something, or are they tearing something down? And if they're pioneering it, they're probably using that gift the way that God intended. If they are seeking a title, maybe not. You can trust God to speak to you there. In a similar sense, there are those in the New Testament and now that exhibited and exhibit prophetic gifts. So maybe some of you here have a gift like that. However, like we mentioned earlier, we don't see in the New Testament any prophet appointed. And the Bible is really clear about prophecy. It's something that makes me want to be real careful because the Bible is really clear about prophecy uh, about what happens if that prophecy turns out to be untrue. We're not going to spend too much time on it, but Deuteronomy 18.22 says this, If what a prophet proclaims the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. Basically, if someone says something and they say it's a prophetic word and it doesn't come true, you're free to disregard them. In the verses preceding that one, God says, though, he will deal personally with those who prophesy falsely in his name. And if you go read those verses, uh, God dealing personally, it's kind of intense. So where does that leave us when it comes to prophecy? Just, again, the zoomed out version, I will tell you this. When somebody uses a prophetic gift in a godly and a true way, it is incredible and life-giving. And it can change a life. The gift is incredibly valuable when used correctly. I remember very, very vaguely someone with a prophetic gift not too long after that time I mentioned earlier when I went to camp because my girlfriend was there and God called me to ministry. Uh, We went back to church on a regular Sunday and they didn't know that I'd had this experience there and they tracked me. Everyone's talking after church, you know. This, I don't remember who it was even, but they tracked me down and they prophesied over me that I I would lead churches. And at the time, I was like, this is weird, right? And honestly, I kind of forgot about it until not that long ago, someone who was at that same service who I ran into grabbed me and said, do you remember that time when so-and-so person uh, prophesied over you? I was like, now that you say that, I do. It's incredibly powerful to connect it 20, 25 years later. The gift is incredibly valuable when used correctly. It can also be Uh, incredibly damaging if it's used incorrectly. And there's many, many people 
especially these days who they claim to be prophets, but they also routinely prophesy stuff that doesn't happen. And in that case, the Bible says we can disregard them and we can allow God to, to deal with them as he sees fit. Thankfully, it's not my job to know whether they misinterpreted it, whether they were never supposed to say it. And my encouragement to you would be that if someone is seeking that title, then maybe just proceed with caution. Just be careful. And truly examine what they're saying. Now, the gift of evangelism that it talks about here, a little more straightforward. Again, we don't see anyone appointed as evangelist in the New Testament. And evangelism, telling other people about the Lord, that's something that we all should naturally be doing. But thankfully, there are those that are given these types of gifts. If you've ever been to church camp, like we're going to drag all these kids to, you have likely seen someone who has the gift of evangelism. You've seen someone who has the gift of like storming into town, taking over the stage for four nights, and then blowing out of town and going to the next place. You've seen someone who has the gift of evangelism. You've probably seen someone who has the gift of evangelism that makes it so they can walk into any coffee shop in any town and start just talking to someone about the Lord without feeling weird or awkward about it. Those people often, and they would probably tell you, they usually don't have like a pastoring or a shepherding gift. Sometimes God installs them later. And if those people with an evangelistic gift, if they have to stay in one place for too long, a lot of times they'll struggle. And they'll feel like a caged up bird. Can't tell you how many evangelists I've talked to who are like, they evangelized, they were evangelists for a while. A lot of these guys, they travel in the summer to camps and conventions. They're away from their family a lot and they get tired of the traveling. So they decide they're going to go pastor a church. And after about six months, they're so tired of being in one place. It's not a gift that God gave them. God gave them a gift to be an evangelist. Again, this is just scratching the surface of this entire discussion, but we can boil it down to this. The title of apostle, prophet, evangelist. We don't see those titles given in the New Testament, but the gifts absolutely are. Those gifts absolutely are. We said all of that stuff. We kind of got technical there for a moment so we can talk about this next verse. This next verse, I believe, is so vital. And when it comes to the gifts that Jesus has bestowed upon us, this is the thing we have to remember. Verse 12, verse 12 tells us what the gifts are for. Listen, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So that the body of Christ may be built up. So all of it, all five things mentioned in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, all of it, every spiritual gift exists to equip God's people and to build up the church. That's why all of them exist. This is telling us something that's incredibly important, and that is that building God's church is not just for the people with these gifts, but building God's church is for every believer. Yes, the people with these five gifts, they might equip people with other gifts, but, but building God's church is for every single believer. If you go read 1 Corinthians 12 that we mentioned before, uh, you're going to see these gifts that are right here, plus a few others that are mentioned. They list them in an order. But I want to point you this morning, if you have your Bibles, uh, to Romans 12, 6 through 13. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to read this particular passage to you out of the New Living Translation today. That's what these days, uh, I've read through the whole Bible in uh, New American Standard. I've read through it in NIV. 
multiple times, and these days I'm just reading it front to back uh, through the New Living Translation. And I'm reading this particular passage to you today uh, out of the NLT just because I love the way they put it. And if you listen, I believe that you're going to see yourself in something that is described here. And if you've got a pen or a highlighter, I encourage you to do this. Take it out. Don't be afraid to mark it as you see yourself in the description of these gifts. The worship team is going to get ready to come sing here in a moment, but um, we're going to read this, this passage. I have it on the screen for you in NLT. Romans 12. I actually have my NLT Bible here. Here we go, Romans 12, 6 through 13. It says this. In his grace, there's that, there's that term again Paul uses. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Do you catch all those things in there? Man, if your gift is giving, give generously. If your gift is leading, lead responsibly. There's something for every single one of us in there. And friends, if you walk away from here knowing one thing today, know that God's desire for us is that we are in it together and that to be in it together, we've got to put our gifts in motion. And every one of us has gifts. Talk is cheap. But we've, and we do have to prepare our hearts, but talk is cheap. And know this, friends, if you have the gift of being friendly, if your greatest gift is not getting up here and talking in front of people, and quite honestly, if someone asked you to do it, you'd probably hope you could crawl into an imaginary turtle shell. If you've got the gift of being friendly, you are valuable. If you are gifted with computers, now they didn't have computers, so Paul didn't write that in here. But if you're gifted with computers, technical stuff, you are valuable. And every single one of these gifts mentioned in verse 11, they receive so much notoriety and they're talked about over and over by those seeking influence in the global church, those that really want to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. All of those gifts, they exist to equip us to reach the world with the gospel. Those gifts exist to help us be together in motion. That's the only reason that they exist. I often say that uh, I think it says important that we notice what a passage does not say just as much as what it does say. And I want you to notice if you read through this in Ephesians and in Romans, there's nothing here about building yourself an earthly kingdom or seeking influence. 
Now there's, of course, ministries that have worldwide notoriety and effectiveness. I'm thankful for that. People that write great songs, preach good sermons, write good books. And we as a church, as God's church, we're blessed by many of those. But ultimately, the success or failure of those things, of those ministries, those people, whether God is pleased with those or not, that rests on what the motivation is. Is the person's motivation, is it to build a personal kingdom, or is it to equip the saints? Because that's what Ephesians 4 tells us, that our motivation should be to equip the saints. You see, God desires us to be together. And he desires us to do it in motion. To put our gifts to good use for his cause. God desires us to take the gifts he's given us, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, all those gifts names. God desires us to take those gifts and make the name of Jesus famous. That's why he gave them to us. And here at our church at Engage Boise, it's mine and my wife's uh, desire for each of you simply to release you to, the, to reach those around you. That's our heart for you. I don't have this all in my notes, but I'll tell you something about my wife. Um, when I met her, uh, she had worked in youth ministry. She'd interned at a large church in a youth ministry, and she was in Seattle. And she moved here, and uh, uh, we were long-distance dating, and she moved here. We weren't engaged or anything yet, and she began to, to help me in the youth ministry. And that was her thing that she knew how to do. My wife was incredible, still is, with junior high girls. That age of girl that most of you are like, I think I'm just going to pass on on interacting with them at all, like fifth, sixth, seventh grade girls, those are the ones she gravitates towards. And she would do these small groups at her house and then our house when we got married. And they were insane. 12 or 15 preteen teenage girls and it just made me want to not be there. But God had given her a gift for that and that's what she thought that she was meant to do. Um, we youth pastored there. We had a large youth group and we went to this church in Cuna and I was leading worship and uh, she's not musically inclined at all. And the story doesn't end with God magically giving her a musical gift because that didn't happen. But what did happen is she got to that church and God gave her a burden for kids ministry. And that our church there needed the kids ministry rebuilt, so that's what she did. It was a gift inside of her that God activated really when we got to that place. And she was able to be released to use that gift there. We left that place in a much better place than we found it. I tell you that so you know that in this very moment, man, God could be just helping you realize and know gifts in you to be used in a different way, maybe ones that you've never had before. But that's our desire and our heart, and I believe it's God's heart to release those, to reach those around you. To live on the right side of the sacred and secular whether that is here in this building or by building your faith, strengthening your relationship with God so you can go do it each day in the mission field that is your daily life. God's heart is that we would reach those around us. Friends, know this. We are together in action when we realize how unique we are. When we take our gifts that God has given us we put them in motion. And if you pay attention, God just might uh, activate or release new ones in you that you didn't know you had. That's why you never see my wife in here most Sunday mornings because she's activating and releasing that gift that God's given her in kids. 
And I want you to know this, friends. The person, like Romans 12 talks about, the person who is simply an encourager, that person holds equal value to the pastor, the apostle, the prophet, the worship leader, anyone else with influence. If your gift is encouraging or kindness, you have the same value that anyone on any stage, small, big, or medium has. We're going to end today, friends, and we're just going to worship for a moment. And here's what we're going to ask God to do as we sing. Uh, We're going to ask God to reveal a little bit more to us what it is that he is calling us to do. And that's my prayer for you is that God would reveal you no matter how young, how old you are, that God would reveal a little more to you what it is he's calling you to do. I'll give you a clue. It has to do with reaching people for him. It's so important that we have that spirit we talked about last week and we're together but also so important that we ask God, okay, God, you've given me a gift. How do I put that gift in motion? And then we have the guts to go do it. And thankfully, we don't have to do it on our own, that when we give our gift back to God and he activates activates us, he sends us, he does incredible things. So would you stand this morning? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray over you uh, for a moment. Uh, We're going to sing just a few minutes before we go have our little barbecue. Lord, I pray for every person here. Lord, I pray for those that are in this place and uh, they think for whatever reason they don't have anything to offer you. Maybe they've sinned too much or been gone from church too long. They think, but Lord, would you help them to know that what your word says is you've given every one of us good gifts. You came to earth, you defeated death so you can be the one to pass those gifts out. And Thank you that you've given good gifts to every one of us. Whether they're public, whether they're in the background or somewhere in between, Lord, they're all equally valuable. Lord, this morning, I pray that even as we sing in this few minutes, that you would would spark something in some people's hearts, a new gift you've given them, or a new gift you're ready to activate in them. Lord, maybe it means helping in this church at the front door in kids' ministry or worship or whatever. Maybe it means activating a gift and going and using it everyday life. Lord, I pray in this very moment you'd help them to be able to put their heart, their body, and their life in motion as we sing.